Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find Luke 17, 20 on page 876. Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 20. This is the very Word of God. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, this is Your Word, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Your power for the salvation of those who believe. And so, Father, according to Your promise, we ask that Your Word would not return to You void here this morning, but that as it is preached, You would work. You would work to to convict of sin, to, to bring to repentance, to build up in faith, and to bring forth the abundant harvest of the Gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't tell you how many times Sarah has sent me into the garage or, or down into the basement to, to find something that she needs, only for me not to be able to find it. I go down, I look, and I just don't see it. Not because it's not there, but because for one reason or another, I just don't see it. Inevitably, she'll go downstairs and she'll just find it right away, as if it was just sitting there the whole time. My dad used to say, if it was a snake, it would have bit you. You ever had an experience like that? An experience where it's just sitting right in front of you, but you can't see it. I think we've all had experiences like that at one time or another. What we will see this morning 
is that the Pharisees are having an experience like that. It's right there in front of their face. But they can't see it. Obviously, the central theme of this passage is the kingdom of God, or more specifically, the coming of the kingdom. It's what the Pharisees ask Jesus about. And we will see over the course, not just of this morning, but over the course of the next two Sundays, I'll just tell you now, it's going to take us two weeks to get through this text. But over the course of the next two Sundays, we will see that there are two opposite errors that you can make regarding the kingdom of God. On the one hand, we can think that the kingdom is entirely future, that it is all in some distant future, and that it is in no way present now. On the other hand, we can think the kingdom is entirely present, that it's here now in full, and there's no further climax or or consummation coming. And as we will see, neither is true, and both are harmful. If we are to live as faithful disciples of our King, we must know that the kingdom is both present and future. We must know that the kingdom is both already and not yet. And Jesus teaches us both of these realities in this passage. As I said, we're not going to get to both of them this morning. So this morning, our focus is going to be on the present reality of the kingdom. In what sense is the kingdom already here? In what sense is the kingdom already present? We, we see this in Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees in verses 20 and 21. As I said, the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom would come. And it's clear from the way they use the phrase and the way the phrase is is used throughout the Gospels that the kingdom of God was a generally understood concept. When someone used the phrase in first century, people generally understood what they were talking about. We see this, for example, in the way Matthew and Mark record the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. In Matthew 4, verse 17, we read, for the time, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's the way that Matthew sums up Jesus' message. We see much the same thing in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We're told, <clears throat> now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. As I said, these are, these are sort of one-line summaries of Jesus' public ministry. They are meant to encapsulate His message in a single statement. That the phrase, the kingdom of God, can be used without explanation and without elaboration in such a summary statement suggests that it was generally understood. The the gospel writers expected people to know what they were talking about. And the reason that they could make such an assumption, and the reason that Jesus himself could make such an assumption is that at that time, in the first century, the phrase, the kingdom of God, was a sort of shorthand. It stood for the fulfillment of all that God had promised to do for His Old Testament people. All that God had promised to do throughout the pages of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of all of those promises, was the coming of the kingdom of God. 
And so when Jesus announced that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, he understood what he was saying and the people who were listening to him understood what he was saying. He was saying, now is the time when God is about to do all that he has promised to do. It's what Jesus said explicitly in Luke chapter 4 at the very beginning of his public ministry as it is recorded for us in in Luke's gospel. You remember the scene. Jesus enters into his hometown synagogue there in in Nazareth. And as a a new rabbi on the scene, he's he's given the scroll to read for the day. And he, he reads the text from Isaiah 61. And then he sits down and he says to those who are gathered, he says, Today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. I am the fulfillment of all that what Isaiah was talking about. With my arrival, the kingdom of God has come. So why would they use this phrase? The phrase isn't even found in the Old Testament. Why would this phrase, the kingdom of God, come to represent all that God had promised to do? Well, it begins to make sense when you think about what it is that God had actually promised to do. What had God promised well, we know that the, the first promise is made right at the very beginning in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. At that moment, God promises a Redeemer. No sooner have, have Adam and Eve plunged humanity into sin and death and, than God shows up and promises to put things right. Promises to, to provide redemption through the seed of the woman. And He begins to fulfill that promise when He calls Abraham to Himself in Genesis chapter 12. And He says, I'm going to do all that I said I was going to do through Abraham. And think about what He says to Abraham. He says to Abraham that He is going to make him into a great nation. That He is going to bless him. That He is going to give him a land. In other words, He is is telling Abraham that His descendants, that His Children are going to become the kingdom of God on earth. And if you, if you look at all that was promised to Abraham, you can begin to put the promise together this way. God says that Abraham's children will be God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying both God's protection and His provision. Hear that again. Abraham's children will be God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying His protection and His provision. That is what is promised to Abraham. And it's a promise that gets repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament. We, we see it come to fruition and be passed on to the nation as a whole at Mount Sinai when, when God brings the people of Israel up out of Egypt and says to them, You will be my treasured possession. You will be my kingdom of priests. You will be my holy nation, living in my land. This is the promise that is given to the nation as a a whole. And it's it's repeated again to David when God says that, that your son will sit on the throne of this kingdom forever. But of course, we know the history of Israel. We, we know their unfaithfulness. We know their sins. We know the judgment that they bring upon their head. We know that they are taken off into exile. And yet, even in exile, God continues to speak through the prophets. And He says, you, you have brought judgment upon your head. The, the tree has been cut down, but out of that stump will come a root. Out of that stump will grow a new tree. The promise still stands. And it is that promise, the the culmination of all of those promises that we are told in the New Testament that reach their fulfillment in Christ, all of His promises are yes in 
him. Yes, Abraham's children, despite their unfaithfulness. Yes, Abraham's children, despite all that they have suffered. Yes, Abraham's children will be God's people in God's place under God's rule, enjoying His protection and provision for all eternity. That's what had been promised. That's what the people were waiting for. And that's what they understood you were talking about when you talked about the coming of the kingdom of God. And this is why the Pharisees ask their question. The Pharisees ask, when will the kingdom of God come? When you understand what they're asking, you you begin to understand that their question is not really an honest question. They're not looking for information. They're not looking for, for clarification. On the, question, on the contrary, their, their question is more of a taunt. Their question is more of a taunt. They're, they're taunting Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, when's, when's this kingdom going to come? You've all heard questions like that before, have we not? We all know the kid on the playground who, who boasts about having a ball st- signed by Steph Curry. And the, and the other kids on the playground are like, really? I, I want to see it. Prove it. Show me. I won't believe it till I see it with my own eyes. That's what the, that's what the Pharisees are doing. They are, they are taunting Jesus. They're saying, you're, you're talking about this kingdom, but I don't believe it. I don't, I don't see it. If, you're, if it's really here, prove it to us. Show us. Because after all, to them it is patently obvious that the kingdom is not here. It is, it is patently obvious to them that Jesus is just blowing smoke. That his, his claims are vain boasts. Just look around. Rome is still in charge. Obviously, the kingdom isn't here. And from the look of things, it's not going to be arriving anytime soon. And so they taunt Jesus. Jesus, you you say the kingdom's coming. When's it going to get here? How does Jesus respond to the Pharisees' taunt? We, We read his answer and what follows. We're told, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be Observed. I think some of the older translations, maybe the Pew Bibles we have here, say with, with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Just clears it right up, doesn't it? Clear as mud, that's the way it feels to me anyway. You know, this, is, this is certainly one of those difficult sayings. This is one of those places where we're like, huh? You know, could, could you say that again? I'm going to I'm gonna have to mull that over for a second. It's, it's, it's not only difficult to understand, it's actually difficult to even translate. The, the translation of, of all the key terms here is debated and, and disputed by the scholars. One of the first questions just has to do with that phrase, with observation or with uh, ways that can be observed or with signs to be observed. The fact that the ESV itself has changed its translation over the years tells you we're not quite sure what to do with this phrase. That's because... It's a, it's a unique word. It's, it's not used very often. In fact, this is the only place that it is used in Scripture. But the few examples that we have of this word being used outside of the New Testament usually refer, <clears throat> usually refer to something like the careful observation of a scientist or the, the careful observation of a detective. When I hear it, I think of someone like Sherlock Holmes who's able to solve the crime because he carefully observes the clues. He doesn't see anything that that everybody else isn't looking at, but he sees it differently. They don't observe, he does. And if this is the right understanding, then what Jesus is saying is this. Jesus is saying, listen, you won't need to be Sherlock Holmes to see the coming of the kingdom. 
You won't need to have his observation skills in order to, to see when it arrives. You won't need him to point out to you, look, here it is, or, or there it is, over there. But, but why? Why will we not need Sherlock Holmes? Well, Jesus gives an answer to this question in the, the second part of our text, in verse 24. Look down. He says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. You won't need Sherlock Holmes because the coming of the kingdom will be impossible to miss. It will, it will be like a lightning flash that lights up the entire sky from one side to the other. You won't be able to miss it. However, that's not what he says here. That's not what he says to the Pharisees. He gives the Pharisees a different reason. And we need to notice what it is that he actually says. Look with me at the middle of verse 21. Why will we not need Sherlock Holmes' observation skills For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This is actually the second translation difficulty. A a literal translation would be the kingdom of God is within you or even inside you. The word that Jesus uses here is actually just the the normal word for the inside of something. It's the word that he uses when he rebukes the Pharisees for cleaning the outside of the cup, but but leaving the inside foul and, and dirty. But translators are a little bit hesitant to go with that because think about what it implies. It's a little bit hard to imagine Jesus saying to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is inside of you. The kingdom of God is, is within you. And so they, they prefer that uh, to render it as, well, the kingdom of God is in your midst or you're in its presence even as you stand before me. And I understand why you might want to go with that translation, but it seems to me that's best to go with the more literal translation. And if we take the more literal translation, we take Jesus to be saying the kingdom of God is within you, then what does he mean? Because I think we can agree he doesn't mean that the kingdom of God is within the Pharisees. But what we have to understand is that he's not making a statement about the Pharisees, he's making a statement about the kingdom. He's he's speaking more generally. He is saying that, listen, the kingdom of God is an internal reality. The kingdom of God is a spiritual reality. The Pharisees' Sherlock Holmes detective skills aren't going to be necessary to help them see the kingdom because it's not the sort of thing that you see with your physical eyes. In other words, the only reason the Pharisees are asking their question, the only reason the Pharisees are are asking when the kingdom of God is going to come is because they can't see what's right in front of their face. They're asking the question because they are Blind. They're, they're blind to spiritual things. The kingdom is right in front of them and they can't see it. Now the idea that the kingdom is present right here, right now, is reflected throughout the New Testament. Think about some of the things that we're told. Think about what we confessed even this morning. Right here, right now, we have been raised with Christ. Right here, right now, we are seated with Him in the heavenlies. Just think about that. What does that even mean? We're seated with Him in the heavenlies right here, right now. Right here, right now, we have passed from death to life. Right here, right now, we are saved. We are a redeemed people. These are all present realities. These are all spiritual realities. And Paul says clearly in his letter to the Corinthians that not everyone can see them. Because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. 
What's more, Paul sets forth the contrast between the, the present spiritual realities and the ongoing external realities as clearly as he can in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Think about what Paul writes. He says, so we do not lose heart. Why? Because though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. So our, our outer man, that which you can see, that which you can measure, that which you can then touch, it's wasting away. And we all know that to be a reality. We all know that these bodies are failing, that, that we are, are growing old, that we are progressing towards death. Our outer man is wasting away. But even as that reality holds, our inner man is being renewed. There is a renewal going on. There is a, a new birth, a, a new creation. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. And Jesus is saying the same sort of thing here. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is present now. It is a spiritual reality in the hearts of His disciples and in the hearts of those who have believed in Him. You can't see it with your physical eyes, but it is right in front of your face. And therefore, when the Pharisees ask, when is the kingdom of God going to arrive? They're not saying anything about the kingdom. They're saying something about their own blindness. And Jesus tells them bluntly, listen, it's already here, and you just can't see it. Now we will see next Sunday that there is a fuller, there is a, a, a more complete, a, an external fulfillment of the kingdom coming. There is a fulfillment of the kingdom coming that we will be able to see with our physical eyes. The kingdom is present, but it is not fully present. This is not as good as it gets. We will explore that next Sunday, but this morning, what I want you to see is this. This morning, what I want you to see is that the kingdom is present now, here, today. The kingdom is a present reality. But why? Why is it so important for us to see this? Why is it so important for us to see that the kingdom is a present reality? Why is it so important for us to understand that it's not entirely future? I said earlier that we must see this if we are going to live faithfully as disciples of Christ. But, but how does seeing the present reality of the kingdom set us free to live faithfully as His disciples? Well, again, go back to that definition. Go back to, 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 to how we summed up the blessings of the kingdom. What does it mean to be the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's protection and provision. And each and every one of those is a present reality in the lives of those who are in Christ. Think about it first. We are presently God's people. We are presently His treasured possession. He has claimed us for our own. We, we often speak of the inheritance that is ours in Christ. The inheritance that, that we will receive. God speaks about us as His inheritance. He, he regards us as His delight. He guards us as, as the apple of His eye. He guards us as, as His treasured possession. Do you know that to be true of yourself? Do you know that in Christ you are beloved, you are delighted in? You are His treasure. This is the way that the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, thinks of you in Christ. We are presently His people. 
And as His people, we presently dwell in His place. As I said, we are presently seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And that will blow your mind if you start to think about it. What what does it possibly mean for us to to be presently seated with Christ in the heavenlies? What what could that possibly even mean? And I have to admit, it's it's more than I can comprehend. It is a a strange idea. It It is an idea hard for me to get my mind around. But what was the defining characteristic of God's place in the Old Testament? From the very beginning, God's place is where God was. God's presence is the divine, is the defining characteristic of God's place. This was true from the very beginning. This was, this was why he had them build a tabernacle and erect it right in the middle of the camp. This is why later they, they built the temple. The sign of God's place was God's Presence. And to say that we now dwell in God's place is to say that we now enjoy His presence. He is with us. He is Emmanuel. The disciples in the first century knew this intimately. Of course, He was right there with them. He, he had breakfast with them. They, they, they spoke over the dinner table. But as Peter says, we are those who do not see Him with our physical eyes. And yet, what did Jesus say? He says, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I am present with you. I will pour out my Spirit. It's what we confessed this morning. The Spirit is the seal that guarantees our inheritance. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, His love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit of God. He now dwells with us even as we dwell with Him. We live in the very presence of God. The Almighty treasures us and dwells with us. And therefore, we now live under His rule. This is the third component of of being the present kingdom of God. We, We dwell under His rule. Now, I know that for some of you, that doesn't sound like good news. We don't like the idea of being under the rule of another. We, we don't like to take orders. We don't like to do what we are told. And I will tell you that's because we're fools. I'd use a stronger word, but you know. We're fools. We are fools. It is the blessing of blessings to be under the rule of God. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, it is by God's grace that we are no longer slaves to sin, but have become slaves to righteousness. It's not that we were set free to go and and do our own thing. We were set free to serve another. And our life is found in serving the One who has redeemed us. Our life is found in, in submitting to His Word. And His Word is blessing That's why the psalmist can say that his words are are more precious than silver and and sweeter than than honey because there is no better place to be than living under the Word of God. I will tell you one of the most important things I I have had to learn in my life, one of the, the most important things that I have to keep learning in my life is that God's law is good. Satan comes to us and he, and he whispers to us and he says, you'd be better off to do your own thing. You'd be better off to, to go your own way. And far too often I listen, far too often I, I believe him and I run headlong into death. Paul asks, what were you getting from those things when you were free from righteousness? Those things brought you nothing but shame and death. He is our good shepherd. He leads us in paths of life. He leads us in paths of righteousness. 
He leads us in the way to go. And it is our great blessing to be found under His rule. But we don't just exist under His rule. We also are under His rule enjoying His provision. As God's people, we enjoy His provision. Think about what that means. It means that we will never lack anything. Now that's a a message that has been taken up by the American church and twisted into something ugly. Twisted into something that it was never meant to be. It's been turned into a health and wealth prosperity gospel that says if you just follow Jesus, then all your troubles will go away. And it doesn't take long for you to figure out that's a lie. It doesn't take long for you to figure out. It just simply doesn't work that way. Jobs are still lost. Bodies still become sick. Relationships are still fractured. We, we continue to groan in this present evil age. And if you have set your hope of God's provision on the idea that everything will work out for you, you will be sorely disappointed. But I want you to hear me say this morning that just because the American church and, and churches throughout the world have, have taken that message and distorted it, it doesn't mean it's not true. Here's the truth of the Gospel. If you are in Christ... If you follow Him, you will never lack anything you need to glorify and enjoy Him for all eternity. You will never lack anything you need to do His will. You will never lack anything you need to do what He's given you to do. All the resources necessary will be yours. I can remember one of my professors in seminary asking, And until you understand how that applies to those starving to death in South Sudan, you don't understand it. How in the world can we we look at those who are are under severe oppression? How in the world can we look at those who who are starving in South Sudan and say they lack nothing? It doesn't seem to make sense, and it certainly doesn't make sense if you've got an American dream type of gospel. But here's the truth. They have everything they need to glorify their King. They have everything they need to do what what He has given them to do. And what they ask us to pray for more than anything is not relief, not supply, but just the strength to stand firm in their faith. It doesn't mean we don't seek to undo injustice. It doesn't mean we don't seek to provide them with the, the material things that they need. But we recognize this, that they will never lack what they need to do what they've been given to do. And the same holds true for you. I can't promise you that you will always have everything you need to to, to meet every physical need that you can imagine or that you will experience. But I can promise you this. He will give you what you need to do what He's given you to do in the moment. And not only will He provide for you, but He will protect you. He will protect you. It's what Peter says in, in 1 Peter 3. He asks, who is there to harm you if you're one of His? Yes, they may cause you to suffer. And we, what? (laughs) Yes, they they may cause you to suffer. They, They may, according to Jesus, even kill your body. But they cannot harm you. Because if God is for you, what does it matter who stands against you? If the maker of heaven and earth has deemed to work all things together for your good, who can possibly thwart his purposes? 
And that is our promise here and now. That's not something we're waiting for. It's not something we're waiting for God to do in the future. We are presently the kingdom of God. We are presently His people. We are presently in His place with Him. We are presently under His rule. We are presently enjoying His his provision and His protection. We are presently the kingdom of God. And so let me ask you, do you have eyes to see it? Can you see what the Pharisees could not? Do you see what is right here, right now, before your face? I pray that you do. I pray that you do, because when you see it, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, you will not lose heart. But rather, as he says in Philippians, you will press on towards the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Knowing that there is nothing in this present evil age that can separate you from His love or thwart His purpose of working for your good. So if you are here this morning and you are discouraged, if you are here and your soul is is downcast, if you are here and you find yourself on the edge of despair, for for whatever reason, whether it be your sins or your your circumstances, I want you to hear that the, the answer is not to try harder. The answer is to behold. The answer is to open your eyes and see. The answer is to to soak in the wonder of what is yours in Christ. In Him, every spiritual blessing is already ours. So if you don't see it, if you can't see it, if you have a hard time believing it, ask Him to open the eyes of your heart. Ask Him to, to open your eyes that you might see the present reality of His kingdom. Ask Him to, to open your eyes to see where you now dwell. And I promise you, if you ask, He will not refuse. It is His delight to open the eyes of His heart. It is His delight to show you what He has done for you. It is His delight to let you see Jesus and all that is yours in Him. And because it is His delight to give us eyes to see, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace. And we humbly ask that You would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see Jesus, and that we might see all that is ours in Him now and in the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.